in general, there are two broad categories of insurance. One is personal lines, which is everything having to do with an individual, things like home insurance, auto insurance, renters insurance, life insurance. So those are considered personal lines. And then on the opposite side of the scale, of course, we've got commercial insurance. Now, commercial insurance, there are a number of different categories, a number of different subcategories. But let's say that everything on the commercial side is called business insurance generically. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Vernon Williams. Vernon is an insurance originator with Brain Financial. And in this episode, we're going to go over the different types of insurance and how they're priced. We're going to talk about insurance pricing for Airbnbs, when we need to get flood insurance, and why earthquake insurance is so expensive. Insurance can be very confusing, and most of us think of it as an annoying extra expense. But having the right coverage is incredibly important, especially if something happens to your investment. So if you've ever wanted to learn more about how insurance works, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Vernon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Okay, so I'm Vernon Williams and the company's name is Brighton Financial and Insurance Services. What we do, we're, we are full service insurance brokers. Commercial insurance is one of the things that we focus on. But before we get to what we do, let me talk a little bit about how I got here. So as you probably can tell from my accent, I'm from the Caribbean and I lived in New York for a while, then New Jersey and in L.A. and all over the place. And when I first came to the country, like most people, I figured out, well, what is it I wanted to do? So I did everything I could and got myself into engineering school. I did electronics engineering and worked in that field for 25 years all over the place and ended up uh, here in, the, in Silicon Valley. And then after about 10 years of doing that here in the Valley, I decided that I wanted to do something else. So I stopped. I quit actually around the last downturn, which is around 2008-2009, and was looking around for something to do. And one of the things that I was looking for, I had certain criteria that I was looking that I wanted to use to establish a business. There were two or three things that I did not want to do. One of the things I didn't want to do is I did not want to be the business, which means that if I was not there, that nothing would happen. So that eliminated a lot of other things. Uh, The other thing is I didn't want anything to have to do with inventory. So I didn't want to have to manage inventory and track this and track that and so forth. So that eliminated more things. A third thing is I wanted something that can build income over time, passive income over time, that if I did not make a sale and whatever it is I was doing, that there will still be some income. And of course, fourth is that I wanted something that I didn't have to be in the office every day for a certain set number of hours. 
And so a number of things jumped out at me. One of those things was financial advising. And I looked at that and the requirement to do that meant that I had to work for somebody or I looked at an alternative, which was to get to that is to start with insurance. And so I not knowing anything about insurance, I figured, well, I'll start off and do some insurance things. So I went to farmer's insurance. That's where I started and got hooked up, got all my licenses, got my securities licenses. And that's where I learned the business. Uh, Of course, farmers is mostly personal lines insurance. But I wanted to do like I'm doing right now. I wanted to focus more on commercial insurance. And we'll talk about that. I also wanted to talk about I wanted to focus on employment benefits as well as uh, retirement planning. And so having done all of that, after about, say, I grew my farmer's book of business real nicely. After about seven or eight years with farmers, I sold that book of business and I started with Brighton Financial. And that's where we are today. We're growing nicely. We're in 15 states. And so that's a little bit about why I got into the business and where we are. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm in a similar boat as you where I started with engineering and now I'm doing real estate for very much the same reasons that you had for doing your own business now with insurance. And I'm super excited to have you on here because I know you as like an insurance expert. And hopefully by the end of this show, me as well as everyone else who's listening will become insurance experts as well. That's my goal. Cool. So let's talk about insurance. Like, Tell me about some of the different insurance policies that you provide as well as some of the prices that go along with them. Okay. So the prices we'll get to and the pricing and mechanism and pricing techniques we'll talk about a little bit later. But in general, there are two broad categories of insurance. One is personal lines, which is everything having to do with an individual, things like home insurance, auto insurance, renter's insurance, life insurance. So those are considered personal lines. And then on the opposite side of the scale, of course, we've got commercial insurance. Now, commercial insurance, there are a number of different categories, a number of different subcategories. But let's say that everything on the commercial side is called business insurance generically. So what we do is we carry all lines, personal lines, which the home, auto, life, and so forth, as well as commercial, all the commercial lines. Our specialty is commercial. We do personal lines only to the extent that we can help an individual. So you said, well, what kind of policies there are and what the prices look like? So everyone knows auto, home, and life insurance. And life insurance is a whole very broad category. We can get into that a little bit more. But home and auto is well understood. Uh, we represent a large number of carriers. And that's one of the things that's important when a person is shopping for insurance is that they need to be able to understand the marketplace for insurance. Let me back up and say this. Insurance generically is a contract. It's a legal contract that says that the insured is going to transfer the risk to the insurance company. They're going to transfer that risk to the insurance company in exchange for some money. So essentially what it says is we're going to write a contract between the insurance company and the insured that says, if anything bad happens to this asset, the insurance company will take care of it. And for that benefit, the insured, the person that's getting the insurance, will pay the insurance company some money every so often. Now, if nothing bad happens, of course, then the insurance company keeps the money. And therein lies the risk. So it's a hedge against bad things happening. That's what insurance company, insurance companies do. The thing to remember, though, as an insured, whether you're on the commercial side or on the insurance side, is that it is a legal contract. And legal contracts mean that they should be understood by both parties. And most of the time, because the insurance company is the one that's writing that contract, the insured person that's buying it in policy, they just focus on price without focusing on the 
details of the contract. And that's what leads to a lot of bad blood because people don't necessarily get into the details and say, oh, well, this price is what it is. And therefore, they'll shop on, on price. And that's why it's important to have a broker or an agent that can actually go through the details of a contract, technical term as a policy, and explain what kind of coverages are there, what kind of coverages are not there, and fit the coverages, which essentially is the policy, to the risk. So the first thing the broker has to do is understand what is that risk. And then he, has, he or she has to find the appropriate contract to cover that risk. And then the last thing is to find the price. And that's the way that we do it here. So without rambling on more about the types of insurance policies, that's essentially is what insurance is about. And we can talk about some specific subcategories if that's something that you have an interest in. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So some of the subcategories. So let's look at the commercial lines, which is where we specialize. So in commercial lines, there are, let me back up and say this. There's something that is not generally known to the public, whether it's businesses or individuals. And that is that there are two broad categories of insurance companies. There's what's called admitted companies, and then there is non-admitted or surplus. Non-admitted and surplus are synonyms. They're used interchangeably. So an admitted carrier is one that's part of the, is admitted to write insurance in that state, and is part of a pool that's backed up by the State Department of Insurance. You so say, what does that mean? It means that if that insurance company fails, they don't have enough money, that the insurance, the, the state in which they write would back them up. So that's an admitted carrier. Now, there's non-admitted carriers, which are companies, and they're right most of the business in the country, actually. Non-admitted carriers, and I'll call some names in a minute to sort of help you identify these, that what they do is they're registered to write business in the state, but they're not part of that state pool, which means that if they were to go under financially, the state doesn't backstop them. So you're taking a risk. However, the reason that they exist is because they write the non-standard risks that are out there. And to be honest, there are more non-standard risks than there are standard risks. Let me give you some examples. So let's say that you're operating, well, let's do an example that's close to home. So let's say that you live in a very high risk area with high brush rating, high fire exposure. Um, it's difficult to defend against fire because it's hard, it's hilly and those kinds of things. Well, the standard market, the, number, the companies that you see advertised on TVs, which is the, I got to call some brands here, although I don't really want to, are the state farms and farmers and all states and those kind of companies. Those are admitted companies. And so those are the ones that won't write in the high brush areas because they don't want that exposure. So if you want insurance, you need to go to the non-standard carriers. And that's where we get companies like and I'll call a name here, Lloyds of London, that comes in and would write that, or some of the not as Scottsdales and those kinds of companies that would write insurance for your home when the others decline. So as you recall, there were a lot of brush fires and wildfires in California recently, and a lot of companies stopped writing insurance in a lot of areas. It was so bad that the commissioner had to actually jump in and not force, but coerce some of these uh, companies to write policies. And so the default was to, if you couldn't get a policy as a homeowner, you had to go to a non-standard carrier. So on the commercial side, the same thing exists, except that outside of wildfires and brush, there are, of course, a number of different things that companies would refuse to write a policy. For, for example, let's say that you operate a factory that makes explosives. Well, the non-standard carriers wouldn't write that. Or 
that you own a, a strip mall or you own a factory or you own a building where there's some high risk activities, all legit, but it's high risk. Well, that the tenant load or the tenant mix will be such that the company, insurance company won't write that. So you need to go to these non-standard companies. And so the non-standard companies hard to write risks. Those That's where we excel. So we offer a large number of policies through a large number of non-standard risks, uh, non-standard writers, that if you have anything that is awkward, uh, for want of a better word, that's where we shine. Now, we do write in the standard market, of course. So we write with a lot of companies that you know and you hear of. But the ones that you don't hear of, you also write with those. And to be quite honest, the ones that you don't hear of do more business than the other way because things fit into their box a little bit more neatly. And what about for flippers? Like, do flippers go in the standard box or the non-standard box? Okay, excellent question. So flippers primarily start off in the non-standard box because the property that they're buying are usually distressed physically. So they use a lot of work. And so because of that, they don't fit into the standard box. So they'll go to, and we write quite a few of these through Lies of London. Now, Lies of London is a primary carrier that does a lot of this work, but you'll see their name on the policy, but normally you would write through a franchise. So Lloyd is a big company, and in the insurance business, these companies like that, they have these franchises, except that in the insurance business, they don't call them franchises. They call them syndicates, which is like a mobster, right? No, okay, they call them syndicates. So the, one of the big syndicates that actually writes a lot of this business is called Atrium. So Atrium is a large syndicate or a franchise that writes a lot of this business. And so they fit in the non-standard box. So getting back to your question, when an investor, typically one that is looking to do a flip, they'll buy a distressed property, a property that's distressed. And because of the state of that property, it wouldn't qualify to fit into the standard market. So we would take them to the non-standard market, write the policy there. Now, if it's going to be just a flip, then obviously when they're finished, they sell the property. There's no need for insurance. But if they're going to keep it as a long-term buy and hold, then after it's done and it's fixed up, you can take it to the standard market risk to rates are a little bit cheaper. And so you start off in non-standard, but once you fix it up and everything's good, you can go to the standard. And we do quite a bit of that. And how about for Airbnb? Airbnb is a whole different animal. So Airbnb is short-term rentals, and there are two sets of categories here too. A lot of the standard markets won't write Airbnb things because the risk is too great and the premium that they charge can't be adjusted to accommodate Airbnb. So a lot of the standard market exclude Airbnb. So there's Airbnb and then there's short-term rentals and there's a long-term rental. So Airbnb, which is nightly rentals, you're going to find it's hard to write those, although there is available. If you have longer-term rentals, which is anything less than a year but greater than a month, it's considered short-term rental. So if you have, you know, 30 days and beyond, then that's a short-term rental. We have a lot of markets for those. So those things can be found. Airbnb is a little bit challenging because the risk, like I said, is really not very well-defined. And you find that the standard markets, they don't like things that are not well-defined. Anything that's not well thought out, and because it's usually a, typically a standard policy, a standard contract, which means that the parameters are well-defined and understood. And that's why they can price it that way. But as soon as you start doing these non-standard things like Airbnb, three days, four days, and we're not sure who is going to be there and the number of people and all those kind of things, it gets a little bit risky for them to put a price on it because they're not sure what the traffic load is going to look like. And therefore, they can't properly define the risk 
and they can't price it to make sense so that they can do it. So Airbnb, short answer is there's stuff available, but you won't find that with the standard markets. You've got to kind of go off to a non-standard market. But if you're doing 30 days and more, but less than a year, you can get in the standard market for that. Specialty carriers. And if you're doing more than a year, of course, then everybody has those. So. So if you have a normal policy like in farmers, but then you decide to rent out your home through Airbnb and then something happens, is it basically like if they find out you've been doing Airbnb, they can cancel your policy and then not pay you out? That is very true. So anytime that you change any of the parameters of your property, you need to inform your insurance broker or carrier. Let's say uh, a typical example is someone buys a piece of property and they live there for a year or two. And then they say, "Okay, I'm going to go and buy another property and I'm going to rent this one. And there may be a three or four month term left on the policy that they're using when they were living there, the primary home. And they say, oh, keep that. And then I'll just buy the home and when buy the new home where I'll move to and keep the existing home as a rental. and I'll rent that out. And when the policy comes up for renewal, I'll go switch. Well, that three or four month period, when you've changed the status of the property, you've you essentially, it no longer is owner occupied. Now it's tenant occupied and the risk is much greater with tenant occupancy. And so now the insurance company could refuse to honor any claim because the status has changed. And that's the same thing that would happen in your example of Airbnb. If you start doing Airbnb and not tell them if something happens, of course, most likely won't honor the claim because they don't have to. So yeah, it is very important to any change in status of any property that you communicate that with the carrier so that they can exclude it or, or not. We get so many different examples of things that happen where they'll exclude, they'll not write a policy, even in a non-standard market. There's so many little things that you say, oh, that's little, that's trivial. But the insurance company is very particular, especially in California. California is one of those markets where your regulatory bodies that look over California, they're very strict. And so the carriers tend to be very stringent in the enforcement of the policy guidelines. So, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that you can actually change your policy, even though there's three months left on it. I think a lot of people don't know that. When are you able to cancel policy and get another policy? Okay. So if you're in the non-standard market, let's say you're a flipper and you've got this non-standard policy, then usually there's a minimum of three months before you can cancel the policy with full penalty. So they'll say that you have to keep the policy for three months. And then after three months, you can cancel the policy with the appropriate refund. That's in the non-standard market. Now, if you're in the standard market, it goes carrier by carrier. Most of the time for the standard home and auto, you can cancel a policy anytime without penalty. There's not a penalty typically for that. In the commercial world, there is. In the personal lines world, home and auto, you can cancel a policy without any penalty. But if you go, sometimes it gets a little sticky because people blur the line between commercial and personal. And a typical example is a real estate broker. So a real estate broker has a personal auto, but he's using it for business. And so now he's got this business writer on there. And so if he tries to cancel the policy, the carrier can say, well, it's being used for business, so we can treat you as a business asset, and they will charge you more. But if you just have use personal use, your home, your auto, and so forth, then you can cancel the policy without penalty at any time. Makes sense. And let's say that something did happen to your home. How long does it take to actually get paid out for it? For example, I had a house that's you know two blocks from mine that actually caught on fire, and it's been there for months, and it's still just like a mess. There's been no construction work on it because they're going to get paid out. So yeah, how long does it take to get an insurance policy to pay you out? Okay, so that's a function of the short answer is that typically you should get some kind of check within 24 hours. Okay, 
primarily in the commercial world, but also in the personalized world. I've had clients, I had a client recently in the commercial world that had a fire that cost, uh, I think the damage was $250,000. And they got a check within a week for 100000 And then I would say a week, a week and a half. And this was an apartment complex, a week and a half. And then after everything settled in, they got the remainder and so forth. Now, on the personal line side, I've had clients where something broke, they had a fire or smoke damage or something, and they had to leave. And within a day, let's say that all of their clothes got damaged, they'll get a check right away to go replace their clothes. Now, fixing the property is a different animal because most of the time, if you see something that is not being repaired, it means that there was some problem with the policy wasn't written properly or the carrier found something that was misleading or inaccurate. There was some fraud. Fraud is a funny word, and the insurance companies like to put fraud and that kind of thing. Sometimes people make a mistake, and they will, brokers may make a mistake, or insurers may make a mistake, and put something on an application, and that is only checked, or might be only checked when there's a claim. So all of a sudden, you forgot to say something, or you said something that is totally, what may be inaccurate, not intentionally, but it wasn't true, and the insurance company can say, ah, in the application, you said that it was blue, but it's actually red, and so we're not going to honor the claim. That is usually why you don't see a claim honored. Now, sometimes if you see a property that is being damaged by fire and it's not replaced, it could be, and this we are seeing some more of these, is that it wasn't worth it to the person that owned the property to replace it. So let's say right now I write uh, quite a bit of business in some low-cost states. Let's say, for example, in the Detroit metropolitan area where houses are go for, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars, but it might take it might be three hundred thousand, a hundred fifty, two hundred thousand to rip, to build them. So let's say it takes two hundred thousand dollars to build a home, but the property value is only fifty thousand based upon the status of that home. So I'm gonna only insure this for fifty thousand because that's what it's worth. But if it burns down, he gets fifty thousand because that's all he insured it for. Well, clearly he can't replace it, so he just walks away and says, I'll just go buy another house of 50000 I'm not going to rebuild this one. And that's because the replacement cost is much higher than the market value. Now, you won't see that in California, but you see that in other states where it costs more to build a house than to buy one. And so people will say, I'll just go buy another investors. So I'll just go buy another house. I'll take the insurance money. I'll go buy another house, and I will just leave that abandoned. Now, a lot of that has to do with the lender. If you have a loan on there, some vendors will make you insure it to value. Or some vendors will say, I only want to insure it for to cover the value of the loan. So in, your, in the case where your neighbor hasn't rebuilt their home, it could be one of, A, they got paid and decided that it's better to keep the money and not rebuild it, or they didn't get paid. In which case, if they didn't get paid, it means that there was something wrong. The policy wasn't properly written. But insurance not I mean, refusing to pay them is not something that can happen because the contract said that they need to get paid. So within a reasonable time frame, so basically within, you're saying maybe a month or so, they should have their full policy if everything was going well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly within a month, they should have gotten some kind of check. I mean, you don't get a standard check to just say, here, here goes, because in the case of rebuilding, it's like a draw. So they'll say, okay, here's some money to get started, and you draw as you go. And then once it's done, then obviously... Once it's done, they stop any payments. 
And the way that insurance works, this is another important point, is that some people get the impression that if I insure my house for $500,000, the insurance company is going to cut me a check for $500,000 if it burns down. It doesn't work that way. The way it works is that when you submit an application for insurance, they look at the home and see what's there and determine what it would take to replace exactly what's there. So let's say that we say it's $300,000 to replace the home. Well, what they'll do is, and the house burns down, God forbid, they'll come out and they'll say, okay, you get your plans, you get started. And as you keep going, you know, they'll come by and they'll make sure everything's going and there'll be a draw. So let's say that your house is, is totally back to where it was, but you've only spent $200,000 of the 300. You say, well, it means that you've been overinsured. Let me say that again. So let's say that you bought a policy for the coverage for 300,000, but you were able to rebuild the house exactly like it was for 200,000. But the insurance company aren't going to give you that extra 100,000 because the deal was that you replace exactly what you have. The deal wasn't to give you the $300,000. And all insurance works this way. The deal was to get you back what you had. So there's no benefit to being overinsured. And that's a point that I I have to fight with even lenders here in California because they'll say, okay, I'm lending, it takes $500,000 to build a house, a 1,300 square foot house, but I'm lending $700,000 on the house, so I want you to insure it for $700,000. First of all, we can't legally do that because we should only be insuring the house for what it takes to rebuild it, not what it takes to buy it. They're two different things altogether. It's not mortgage insurance, it's property insurance, replacement costs. So I have to explain to lenders, and some of them understand, the big guys understand, some of the smaller guys don't, that, yeah, we insure to replace the value. The thinking, of course, and the, and the accurate is that if your house is rebuilt exactly like it was, the value that it had before will be retained, okay? And so if your house costs $300,000 to replace and replace exactly, and the value was $2 million before, well, you're back to $2 million valuation because... The house is built like it was before, regardless of what the loan amount was. And so that's a point that we've got to always stress with lenders. So, yeah, the amount of insurance is important, but their loan value or the market value shouldn't be driving the amount of insurance that you get. Yeah, it's like a cap. It's not how much you're going to get when something happens to you. Exactly. It's a limit. Exactly what it is. Yeah. So I think in my neighbor's case, though, it was because the power lines fell down and then, you know, their house caught on fire. So maybe they're having some problems with finding out who's at fault and who has to pay for it. I mean, that could possibly be the case. Okay. So in this case, the insurance company typically does in that case is they would have paid for it and then they would subrogate. That's a funny term of going after the person that's responsible. So it's just like an auto insurance. If somebody hits your car, your insurance company will pay you, fix your car, and then they'll go after the person that hit you. I see. Yeah. It's the same thing that happens in technical term is subrogation. Now, sometimes you can write a policy with a waiver of subrogation, which means I don't want you to go after them. You just, you know, that usually happens in commercial policies where you'll say, okay, I'm going to sign something, Mr. Insurance Company, that says, okay, forget subrogation, forget going after this guy. You just charge me a little bit more and you pay me and we won't worry about it. By default, subrogation is there, which means that in the case of your neighbor where the power line fell, it sounds like as though it would be the power company or whose responsibility I assume it would be to maintain the pole should have paid to fix the property. The insurance company should have fixed the property, repaired the property, and then go after the light, the power company. So in the case of all those homes that caught on fire a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure all the insurance companies are going after PG&E pretty hard. 
Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. And that's why PG&E went, decided to file bankruptcy to get rid of those claims. And that's a whole story where they filed bankruptcy and then they got bailed out and blah, blah, blah. The insurance companies were being kept at bay and by PG&E. And this is just another tactic through bankruptcy to dismiss or to get rid of their responsibility, but to level the claims a little bit. Because if you get all these claims coming in all at once, then the company obviously can't, won't have enough cash to pay out all of those things and insurance won't cover them. So that's why they declared bankruptcy. But yeah, the power company should have paid and the insurance company should have paid to fix the home. There's got to be something more to it. Is this in Florida or is this here in California, the place that burned? Oh, it's in Milpitas, it's in California. Oh, yeah, that's odd. It happened a couple of months ago. It was crazy. We saw this giant billows of smoke. We went outside. We we're like, oh my God. <laughs> Luckily, I think everyone was safe, but it's still very sad. Wow. And the power, it was the power line that caused that? That's odd. Yeah, it fell down. Oh, and the public power company, like... Uh, I think it's pg Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I can understand. Although the insurance company really should have paid. I mean, I'm a little surprised that they didn't because their contract is to pay, regardless of what the reason is. Yeah, I mean, maybe the case is the same, what you said, where maybe they're just not doing it. You know, like, uh, who knows? Yeah. I want to go into some of the more odd policies that homeowners need to worry about, like... When they need to get flood insurance, when should someone buy earthquake insurance, things like that. Okay, so flood insurance and earthquake insurance are the categories of insurance that my position on those is a little bit different from most agents. So flood insurance, normally if you live in a flood zone, the lender will tell you to buy insurance. So it's mandated. The lender will tell you you live in a flood zone and therefore a high risk flood zone because everybody lives in a flood zone, but a high risk flood zone and therefore you should buy insurance. Now, flood insurance is typically very expensive because up until about a year ago, maybe two years ago, all flood insurance came through FEMA, even though it was sold through different carriers, State Farm, Farmers, State, uh, Allstate, and all those companies, they would sell a policy. But the FEMA, or the National Flood Insurance Program, which is authorized by Congress, were backstopping all of those. So the companies would sell these policies, but the ultimate insurer wasn't the company. The insurer was being supported or underwritten by FEMA. And FEMA obviously gets its money from Congress. And so every other year or every two years, Congress has to, needs to appropriate more money into FEMA because they lose money and so forth. So every three or four years, actually every five years, FEMA redraws the flood maps. So this year you might be in the flood, a serious flood zone. Next five years you might not be. So you might oscillate. You might go back and forth. So that's why when you get a loan, the lender looks and says, oh, you're in the flood zone this time, a high flood risk flood zone, so you need to get flood insurance. And there's different severities of floods, and therefore the pricing is based on the severity of floods and so forth. So now if it's not mandatory that you purchase flood insurance, it means that you're not in a severe flood zone at this point. But it could still be a wise decision to buy flood insurance. Now, let me explain flood, though. Flood is a funny thing because flood means that water, the only definition that the insurance company uses for flooding is water rising from outside, right? Water rising. So any water that rises up is considered a flood. So let's say that your roof got blown off and water poured in from outside through rain and you had your whole area flooded. Well, that's not flood, right? So flood means that the water settled outside and it rose from whatever level it was and it kept rising and rising and rising until it flooded your place. So that's the definition of flood. But water falling down through something or some appliance leaking is not flood. There's coverage for that and so forth and so forth. 
So there's flood. Earthquake is a different animal. I normally, for earthquake, I normally advise my clients, it depends on where they are in their life cycle, for want of a better term. So earthquake insurance is very expensive. Normally, it's not mandated by anybody. It's not mandated by any lender or anyone else. So it's purely discretionary. The thing about earthquake insurance is that apart from the cost, usually there's a 10 or 15% deductible. Now, that deductible is not based on the size of the claim, but it's based on the size of the limit that you have. So let's say that you're going to buy earthquake insurance for a $500,000 property, and you have a 10% deductible. Well, that's a $50,000 deductible. So let's say that you have there's an earthquake a shaker, and it comes along, and it knocks some things off, shelves and so forth, and you've got $40,000 worth of damage. So it's $40,000 worth of damage, which is sizable, and you've got earthquake insurance, but now you've got a $50,000 deductible. So for you to get any money, you've got to have more than $50,000 of damage. And most of the time, damage falls under the threshold of the deductible. So because, you, you know, there's a lot of earthquakes and stuff, you may get $10,000 worth of damage, you may get fifteen, but your deductible is... 10% of your property value. So or not your property value, but your, your construction costs. So that makes it not very attractive buy. However, if there's an earthquake, and this is where it comes in, and let's say it cracks your foundation, and now your house is condemned, now it becomes a good bargain because now it would take $300,000 to build your house. You've got a $30,000 deductible and so you get a $270,000 to build your house. So now you feel, oh, you were smart to do that, right? So that's why earthquake purchase is a little bit tricky. Now, you say, well, what does this life cycle come into? Well, I looked at people at a certain point in their life and say, okay, if something were to happen to your property, do you have enough time to recover to go buy another property if the property is condemned? So if you were 55 or 60 years old and your house is cracked, Unless you have a bunch of money, you know, say, I mean, your foundation gets cracked in an earthquake. You're like, well, I can't really fix this. I don't have time to recover. So then I say, okay, I say, if you're reaching that point, you might want to consider earthquake because it's just like any investment. You can only get your time horizon is too short. You might just uh, get earthquake insurance. If you're 25 years old and your house, your foundation cracks, you have enough time between then and retirement, even though it's a loss, to move on. You can do whatever it is with the property, liquidate the property, you sell it, da, 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 and move on, And even though it's a loss. But if you are older and your house is your main asset and you needed that for retirement and so forth, then you've got to protect that a little bit harder. That's the point I'm trying to make. See where I'm going with that? Exactly. And I have a quick question about pricing. So if I look at my own personal residence, it seems that hazard insurance is going to be about 700 a year, flood insurance around 2000 a year. And the proposals for earthquake are between, I think, three and $5,000 a year, which is ridiculous. Yes. But it seems like hazard insurance and like, you know, fire policies seem to be more probable than earthquake insurance. So why is it so expensive for earthquake insurance? Right. So it all has to do with the risk, right? And in the case of fire, we'll use those interchangeably. First of all, there's competition, right? There's competition. So the number of carriers that write fire or hazard insurance. So that's going to reduce the price there. The second thing is that the risk is very well understood, okay? So there are a couple of things that will cause a fire, right? The appliances in the home, carelessness, or just negligence, or just misfortune. And so the risk 
and the probability of a fire is very well understood. And so the pricing can be matched to that risk. So those are two reasons. One is A, competition, and B, the risk is well understood. And so that was drive the price down, okay? And then the third factor is that everyone pretty much that owns a home, I would say everyone, but not everyone, but most people that own a home, I say 99% have insurance. So that overall pool, that risk is spread across a large number of people. So a lot of insurance companies have a lot of homeowners that put money into this pool that supports the fire risk or the risk of writing a, a policy. And therefore, since it spreads or diversifies that risk, then it brings the price down. So I, I'm saying something a little clumsily, but essentially there are three reasons why the fire policies are cheaper. One is A, competition. Two is that the risk is very well understood. And three is that there's a much larger pool of people putting money into that and therefore putting money into that, meaning buying homeowner's insurance, right? Right, because everyone pays for the policy, but not everyone actually makes a claim. So they can just have like the stock of money, I guess, to float, right? And then they can invest it and make some stable investments and then pay out the people who do actually have claims on their policy. Correct. So that's the way to look at it. In the place of earthquake and flood, usually have one person. In the case of flood, although they're getting more right now, for years, since the 1940s, a lot of companies, all the companies in the U.S. withdrew from the flood market because there were serious floods in the Midwest and a lot of them went broke and who didn't go broke lost a lot of money. So they just withdrew to stop, just stop writing flood. And so that's why the government stepped in. FEMA came in and they said, okay, we have to write flood because the mortgage market would dry up in some markets unless you had flood insurance. So the government said, we'll backstop that and we'll write and FEMA will be responsible. So you had one guy writing one company, one organization actually backstopping flood for a long number of years. And for a large number of years, the flood was being subsidized by Congress. In other words, the price of the protection that being charged was lower than the actual cost. But it was okay because there weren't that many floods for a large number of years. In the last 10 years, though, you can see that number of floods around the country have picked up ever since Katrina. And so now the government is beginning to charge more and say, okay, we got to get this closer to market pricing. And so that's why you're saying the floods are flood pricing is where it is. And of course, there's repetitive areas. And a recent development in the last couple of years, though, is that some private companies are beginning to tiptoe back into the flood market. And they're using technology to actually drive, analyze the risk and drive pricing. Yeah, FEMA is not there yet. FEMA is still doing the old fashioned land surveying maps and old school stuff saying that this is, you know, because when you buy a flood policy through FEMA, essentially what they learn is, so, well, where are you relative to sea level? What's the likelihood of flood based upon what the flood history is? Where's your house relative to the next house? And so it does a land surveying thing and try to figure out what's the likelihood of a flood. The newer approach is a little bit different. What they're doing is they're looking, they're using AI to look at the likelihood of flooding based upon not history, but they look at climate change things. They look at those kinds of things. They look at, they use modeling for predictive modeling based upon water temperature and those kinds of things, things that oceanography, things that would normally drive storms and the patterns and those kinds of things, they'll look at those and they'll use all of those kind of techniques and tools to kind of establish what the risk profile looks for for different markets. And they can use GPS, of course, and they can pinpoint specifically in certain markets what the likelihood of flood is. So your house might be different from my house, even though we're next to each other. And so with that kind of data, 
they can price it, we can price each property based upon the likelihood of flood and they're beginning to tiptoe in. Now, like I said, FEMA is not there yet, even though FEMA writes maybe like 90% of the flood policies in the market. So that's the other reason that flood is expensive is because it was one guy. It's, those prices will fall over time because the private market is not getting back in, the private carrier is not getting back in there. They're starting with the commercial world, but they'll get back in there. Now, earthquake is not a state, it's not a countrywide thing. It's, there's on some specific states. And in California, there are only two, a couple of companies well, 90% of the earthquake policies are written through CEA, which is the California Earthquake Authority. You may see them advertised on TV, and that's a state-sponsored thing. So, again, there's only one guy writing insurance, so it's going to be expensive, and that's where it is. The private companies that are beginning to tiptoe back into the earthquake market, but again, they're very selective. So insurance companies obviously want to write business without losing money. So if they think that there's a high probability of an earthquake in your area, in other words, if you sit right on top a fault zone, they say, oh, we don't want to write you. Or we don't write you this year, but we won't write you next year and that kind of thing. Whereas the earthquake authority don't have that kind of flexibility. They'll write you, but they'll have to charge you more. So because of lack of competition and the fact that they carry of last resort, they have to charge that kind of price. And that was the reason that you find, and of course, because earthquake is totally discretionary, there's not that large pool of people that are writing, that are buying earthquake insurance. And so they don't have that pool of money to invest, to mitigate the risk or to get a return to subsidize some of the non-claims. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. They think that once they get a typical hazard insurance policy that encompasses earthquake or flooding or any kind of natural disasters. Do you want to briefly go over what typical hazard insurance actually does cover and what it doesn't cover? Yeah. So across the country, there's a standard form that is used for homeowners insurance. And the reason they did that is that each state has a commissioner of insurance and all 50 states have gotten together over the years and standardized the form such that any insured moving from a state, one state to another can look at their policy and say, oh, yeah, this is what I got. And this. The numbers change, the limits change, but the policy, the terms, some of the basic terms change. But if you look at them, the basic coverages are there. So let's start with the amount of insurance that you need to cover the structure. So that's the replacement cost. And the replacement cost is established by, there's a piece of software that is sanctioned by every state that says, yeah, you got to use this tool or that tool or show us how you got, how you arrived at this number. So once you arrive at the number saying that this is the replacement value for that structure, Again, that's based upon the features and amenities of that structure. Once you've got that, then it says, okay, there's, there's, here are the other things that you would need to get. So to ensure the structure, then next to that, you want to ensure any separate structure. So if you have a barn, that's not popular here in California, but a storage shed, a barn, or any other structure that's on the house that's not habitable, or even if it's habitable, but it's not attached to the main house, that's separate structures. And that comes along with that is by default part of the standard policy. The next thing is your personal belongings. So personal belongings is the interior of all of the contents of your home, your furniture, your electronics, everything that has your clothing, everything that has to do with your personal property, that's part of the standard package also. And then there's loss of use. Loss of use is if you can't live in your house for a covered loss and you have to live somewhere else, how much they're going to pay you and when and how long and those kinds of things. So that's another standard part. And then there is liability. Liability is if you get sued for any reason within, well, for any covered reason, 
then of course they'll want to cover you for that. The thing that people sometimes don't get confused with is that liability is when someone else is paid by the insurance company on your behalf. So something happens to you or something that you did or was caused by you caused someone else to be injured or some, somebody's property to be damaged and the insurance company is going to pay that other person on your behalf. There's like a third party payer. So the money doesn't come to you. The money goes to someone else. So that's liability coverage. There are these incidental things that come along, things like jewelry and precious belongings and those kinds of things. And then there's medical coverage and so forth. So all those I call ancillary things. What I've seen in the last couple of years on homeowners policy is that they're beginning to offer some things that weren't there before. There's a company that I write now that's offering, as part of a standard contract, is offering appliance coverage. So everything in your home, your heat, your HVAC system, your washer, your dryer, anything that uses electricity, except computing, that's a different thing, is covered for repair or replacement. So that's something that I've seen crop up in the last couple of years, which wasn't there before. Because in the past, once you buy a homeowner's insurance policy, that was just it. If you wanted to buy an appliance repair policy, you went somewhere else and usually Sears. Sears was the big seller of those. And you'd buy an insurance to repair your or replace your appliances. Now, this company came along and is incorporating all of those features into their policy, their homeowner's policy. For, and it's a very nice price also. And so that's something I've seen come along. The other thing is that they're also including utility line protection. Most people don't know this, but from your house to the main distribution line of a utility, so let's say water, for example. So water usually comes to your house from a main running down the main street, and then there's a tap, a pipe line that runs, obviously a reduced line that runs from the main to your house. Now, 99% of the policies out there don't cover the line that runs from the main to your house. The coverage starts from the time the water, from the time the line, from everything inside your structure. So let's say that the pipe that goes from the main to your house breaks across your yard. That could run, depending on the size of your yard and your driveway and whatever, it could be a three or $4,000 repair. And usually that's not covered. And so we find that people say, oh, well, it should be covered. Well, of course it's not. So this company came along and said, oh, we'll cover that automatically. So not only do they cover your appliances, which is a great thing. So let's say your stove stop working. You just call them and they'll send someone else to fix it. And if it can't be fixed, they'll just give you a new one, right? But it also covers the line, the water line, and it covers the electrical line. It covers the cable line. So any utility that comes that is tapped from a main source and comes into your house, all those are covered, which is a great thing because now you don't have to worry about it. Speaking of that, one of the things that people, sometimes people lose sight of is the fact that the homeowner is responsible for the upkeep of the sidewalk. And so there are two things to watch out for in that regard. One is that if the sidewalk is kicked up is in the state of disrepair, the state or this, the city actually can order you, order the funny word, but can tell you to fix it. And then you've got to fix it. Otherwise, they'll put a lien on your house. If you don't fix it, they'll fix it and put a lien on your property. So you don't want that. But the other thing is the liability. So let's say that someone, there's a uneven sidewalk, uneven pavement in front of your house and you refuse to fix it or didn't get around to fixing it and someone stumbles and falls. Well, now you've got a liability claim and that will go against the insurance. The insurance will pay, but then there's a black mark against you. 
And what do you mean by that? Well, whenever you file an insurance claim, just like in credit, you keep a score. You got an insurance claim score. And if you have too many losses or too many claims, then you were denied insurance. That happens quite often, actually. But most people don't recognize that, that there's an insurance score just like there is for a credit score. And they're two different things. And so they keep track of all the claims. And regardless of which company you go to, they'll know what kind of history you have. And they will either adjust your rates or deny you altogether insurance. Do you have like a ballpark number for how much they'll adjust your rate if you take a claim? So, no, it depends on the frequency of claims is more important than the size of the claim, to be honest. So if you have six small claims, $6,000 claims, well, you won't get to six. They'll stop you before you get to six. But then they look at that. There's a pattern of claims. Uh, they look at that more seriously than if you have one $40,000 claim. One $40,000 claim says, oh, it's an accident happened once. Six $1,000 claims says, oh, this guy is just trying to make some money off of us. So the short answer is no. Every company has their own guidelines for what to mark up and how to mark it up. I just say on the average, though, if you have a homeowner's claim, if you have one or two, they usually don't mark it up that much. Auto claims are different. Auto claims is where prices just go crazy because autos are much higher risk than a home. So a much, much higher risk, not only the insurance company, but the insured than a home. So homeowners rates tend to be pretty stable. They don't mark those up too much. But auto rates, they'll ding you real heavily because autos are a huge source of liability. And so they get dinged every time you do something, something bad happens with autos. Nice. Yeah. You know, I was also curious, how are insurance brokers like yourself paid? Do you guys get paid extra by charging the buyers more or do you get paid by the insurance companies? And if it's the first case, What's the reason for going for an insurance broker instead of just going directly to like farmers or Geico directly? Okay. So there are two categories of insurance guys, essentially. One are people like me, which uh, you call ourselves brokers. And what that means is that we represent a large number of companies. And so our thing is that we shop around the risk. We shop around for the insured. So that's what we do. So if you come to me and you say, I have this particular thing to insure, I will shop it around and get you the rate, the best rate that is out there. You don't have to shop it around. Now, if you go to farmers or state farm or one of those, farmers could only sell farmers and state farm could only sell state farm and so forth. So you're locked into that one particular thing, which means that you've got to shop it around and then you've got to do apples to apples if you can comparison. Now, to answer your question about how we get paid. So if everyone gets paid a commission, of course, that's understood. If you sell a non-standard policy, remember we talked with standard and non-standard before, then the state allows you to charge not only to get a commission, but you can charge a broker fee. So if you are in the, I mean, technically you can charge a broker fee also, even in the standard market, but that's very, very rare. In the non-standard market, which we talked about, you're allowed to charge broker fees in addition to the commission. And that's because the risk is higher and the underwriting is more because it's non-standard. you got to kind of look at everything, understand everything. So there's a lot more work involved in the non-standard market. In the standard market, where the risk is very well understood, you push a couple of buttons and the data is entered and you get a, you spit out a quote. And so there's a straight commission, right? And every company has a different commission structure. Some of them start, depending on auto, it might be 10%, all the way up to 20%, depending on company and all kinds of things. But that's where we are. But the captive market, which is the people that can only sell a single brand, those are called captives, their commission is based on obviously production, right? So they sell a policy, they get a commission, blah, blah, blah. 
with people that are brokers, people that sell multiple brands, they get a commission also, but in addition to that, they can charge a, uh, a broker fee. Here's the thing, but we should go to one versus the other. So when you go to, let's say you go to Farmers or State Farm or one of those, when you go to those guys, the policy is pretty much written for them. And they explain some of the concepts and terms and everything that they do will kind of fit you into the box because whatever brand they're selling, there'll be some constraints there and they will fit you into that box and make, you know, make sure that you kind of stay there. And that's not a bad thing. They'll kind of work with you. But the point is that they don't have another option. So whatever it is that they're selling, whatever objection you come up with, they'll kind of overcome that objection by showing you something that is beneficial to their company. If you go to a broker that sells multiple brands, you say, okay, what about this thing? You say, okay, well, I've got four or five different policies here, four or five different quotes here. Here are the pricing. But even though you get a lower price here, this clause here is going to work against you or this particular feature is going to work against you. And so you get to see how insurance is working when you go to a broker because there are multiple different options. There are multiple different packages and prices and things like that versus one guy who is saying, okay, I got to sell this because that's all I got to sell. And again, I don't want to badmouth the captive guy because I used to be one and they're great guys, but there are some limitation in what they can offer. And that's the problem that it's a binary decision. Either you buy from them, either you buy that policy or you go away. In the broker market, there's some flexibility and it's not unusual to mix and match. For example, I had a lady yesterday that says, okay, I want a homeowner's policy and I want an auto policy. And ordinarily, if you went to one of the captive guys, you'll try to put them all together and say, oh, we're going to get a discount. Well, we tried that with this lady, but the package deal was more expensive than if we broke them up and went to different companies. So we were able to get her a much better price by breaking them up and saying, this company has a better home price. This one has this. And even with the pricing and everything else, you came up much better because we were able to break them up as opposed to packaging them together and even with the discounts. So that's why is I think that the broker offers a little bit more value. Yeah. And maybe there's even potential for you guys to have like wholesale deals because you guys do more volume than someone who just buys your own policy. Right. Yeah. We do get a great look at these kinds of market. Now, the thing about what I do and what I think the value is, is that we try to, you know, at least in our practice, I try to look at the risk first. The most important thing is to make sure that if something happens that my client gets paid, that's what I look at. Right now, I have a guy that is trying to do, you know about this because you're in the real estate business, ADUs, right? The guy is trying to put together a company to build ADUs. So he's going to have someone build these ADUs, transport them, put them into someone's backyard. So he's not building them on site like some other folks. He's going, okay, the factory that builds these things, or multiple factories, and then he wants to have them build, have them completely built. They're not going to be assembled on site. They're completely built as a single self-contained unit. And then we're going to put those into someone else's, you put them on a truck, ship them from wherever they're being built, put them in someone's backyard. So you can see all of the risk and liability and things that are involved in that kind of thing. It's not, okay, so what I've got to do is I've got to look out there for all kinds of things that could happen. I've got to say, okay, once the thing is built at the factory, are you going to take possession right away? If you don't, then we've got to take some coverage there. And who's going to ship it? Well, the shipper is going to have insurance, but what happens if something happens that's not the shipper's fault? Is the shipper going to indemnify you? And once it gets to the site, 
there's a crane operator that has to lift it up. What happens if the crane operator drops it on the person's house, right? And then, okay, so then there's a contractor who's going to do the installation, going to put it on that pad. What happens if the contractor messes up? Who's going to cover that? And if everything goes perfectly right and everything is fine, let's say two years to three years down the road and something happens to this house, let's say the chandelier falls down and injures a kid, who's going to take care of that? Or let's say, that's a bad example, let's say that the house starts to shift off the pad, the, the ADU. Well, who's going to, he said, well, what happens if the contractor is out of business? And I said, well, that's where we come in because even though we're not writing the insurance for the contractor, we would take a look at the contractor's insurance and see that they have the kind of insurance that keeps the policy in force for even after they're out of business for 10 years. So it's a 10-year look-back window. So those are the kind of things that we have to look for for our clients to make sure that even in flippers and real estate investors, we have to say, okay, you flip the house and you walk away, but you're not done. Because three years down the road and something happens, then you're like, what happens? So the insured or the, the person that bought the property will come and find you because you're the point of contact. And that's the primary reason, actually, that we kind of insist that they have to have a licensed and insured contractor. Because when you're done, you sell the property, you're not done. You've got a 10-year attachment to that property. So you've got to make sure that whatever you do, that you are covered, even if you're out of business, and even if you write you an LLC, they'll still find you. So you've got to make sure that you're covered. And that's what we do. We look out for all those risk points. Wow. Well, Vernon, thank you so much for all of your information today. I feel like I am now an insurance expert, and I'm sure all my guests are as well. How can people get in contact with you if they want to find out more information about insurance policies? Okay, so there are three ways, of course. The website, which is thebrightonfinancial.com. So it's T like tomato, H-E. And then Brighton is B like Baker, R-I like India, G-H-T-O-N financial.com. So it's thebrightonfinancial.com. And my email address is first initial last name at thebrightonfinancial.com. So it's vwilliams at thebrightonfinancial.com. And if either one of those fails, you can reach me at 408-241-2100, extension 3, 408-241-2100. Extension 3 reaches me directly other extensions reach other folks that number is also a textable number it's a landline but it's also textable which is an odd thing so but it's textable you can't attach any documents to it but you can certainly text that number obviously without an extension so those are the ways that you can reach me sounds great well vernon thank you so much for your time it was a pleasure having you on the show thank you so much sean i really appreciate that and i'm looking forward to getting the coffee take care sounds good take care sure bye here are some of the key takeaways from this episode you need to make sure that you get the right amount of coverage for your needs. Insurance will only pay you as much as you need to restore your property up to your insurance claim limit. So just because you're insured for $500,000, it doesn't mean that you're going to get $500,000. You're only going to get paid up to what you need to restore your home, but if the claims are above $500,000, then you're going to be out of pocket for the rest. So make sure you're covered properly and feel free to reach out to Vernon for any of your commercial or residential insurance needs. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. 
You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.